Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. Uh, let me introduce myself again. My name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here at uh, Redeemer. It's good to see so many of you this morning. We continue in a series that we're going to be in for these 10 weeks that we're in one service together, we're talking this summer about some of the strategic applications of our theology that shape our ministry as a church in our unique cultural time and setting. Our core commitments, you might say, what we're going to call our theological vision. And so we've talked about the gospel and about staying on the gospel. Those were the first two weeks. Last week we said one of the results of emphasizing and staying on the gospel is friendship. Friendship among people who ordinarily have very little in common at times. Friendship among people who are of very different cultures or speak different languages even. Community. And this is important, I think, because so much of Christianity is characterized by divisiveness and broken relationships. If you've been in the church for very long at all. You've probably dealt with deep conflict and maybe even something like a church split just in my lifetime, just in my lifetime. And I didn't do this for very long. It was kind of a passing thought. But just in my lifetime, I know of 15 to 20 fairly high-profile church splits in the city of Winter Haven. Think about that. 15 to 20 fairly high-profile. I'm talking about significant churches, not, not churches that nobody's ever heard of before. But significant, high-profile church splits, I could only think of five church plants. And so this is an indication that there's something defective in the Christianity in our city, and the gospel's the solution. The gospel's the solution, and so in pursuing friendship and making it a priority with one another, with other churches, in collaborative efforts for ministry in our city and so forth, we are seeking to undo part of what has hindered our gospel witness in our city and in our county. So friendships is important. But another result of emphasizing and staying on the gospel that I think we would begin to see happening among us is what we're going to talk about this morning. And that is that we would become a people in a church that's characterized by humility. Humility. Gospel humility. That's, that's our topic. And again, there are a few dozen gospel outcomes that we could choose to emphasize. So why humility? Why is this one of the main things that we would say we want to be known for, that we want to pursue, and so forth? And it's a long answer that I don't have time uh, for in, in its entirety this morning. But part of the answer is because, in the one sense, humility is so rare. It pains me to say that, that the Christianity in our culture seems to produce people who are mean-spirited and look down and talk down to everybody else who doesn't agree with them. 
Now, you may not think that's true, but ask some of your unbelieving non-Christian friends and neighbors. They'll tell you that, that, you know, that our Christianity tends to produce people like this. Now, why is that? And I want to say to you this morning, I think it's a sign that what passes for Christianity in many cases is not real Christianity. It's religion, not the gospel. And the fruit of religion is pride, self-righteousness, and contempt for others because religion is performance-based, right? We've talked about this. And so for religious people, salvation means doing it better than everybody else. And if you think you're saved by doing it better or by being better than others, then you'll constantly be having to point out how everyone else is wrong and you are right. Doesn't that make sense? That, that's what would be the fruit of that. See, irreligion, unfortunately, has the same problem. Self-effacement and self-denial are, are frowned upon on our, in our culture. The unforgivable sin today is to tell somebody that they should say no to themselves. Expressive individualism is the new religion, and this is being fed by social media. I mean, salvation is found through innate, intimate knowledge and contact with oneself and then figuring out how to expose the beauty, power, and even, in some cases, the divinity within. This is salvation in our day and time. We have become a whole society of narcissists who are so in love with our own reflections that we can't help but keep broadcasting them to the world. So humility is rare. It's rare. It's rare in both religious circles and irreligious circles. And the solution to religious self-righteousness and hate and violence is not irreligion. The political pundits have it wrong there because irreligious people end up just as self-righteous and oppressive as the religious people they hate so much. Humility is so rare, so rare. But when you come across it, in those brief, rare moments, when you actually see it, it, isn't it really beautiful? I mean, humility is compelling. It's so compelling. I mean, we have lost the culture wars, which we probably should never have been fighting in the first place. Uh, but that's another sermon for another time. We've lost the culture wars not because we weren't bold enough, but because we weren't humble enough. Because we didn't listen. Because we weren't kind enough. We weren't willing to patiently endure in arguing and, and trying to persuade other people. And listen, it doesn't matter what the content of your argument is, whether you're a parent or whether you're on social media, whatever the case might be, it doesn't matter what the content of your argument is if your character is not compelling. And so more than we want to be cool or liked or successful or any of those kinds of things, I want to tell you we want to be a church known for its humility because we believe that humility honors God, and we believe it's what our city truly needs. And this is why we pray for other churches in our city. It's why we collaborate, we cooperate with other churches in our city, because uh, we want to be a church that celebrates every time something happens in Winter Haven that's great, even if we had nothing to do with it. Right? And we want to see God do good things in our city without having to be a part of every single thing he does. It's not about Redeemer. It's all about the glory of God. And the spiritual and physical needs of the people in the place that we love. And so if you pray for me, pray that I would lead with humility. That I'd be a person of humility because pride is the first sin. It's the sin that leads to all the other sins. But humility heals what's broken. And so look there at your outline this morning. You'll see uh, basically the tagline that we're going to really kind of digest this morning. And what, what this text in Philippians 2 is really about is, is this thing that you've probably heard us say around here quite a bit. We've been talking for weeks now about the gospel, but here's what I want you to see is that believing the gospel, as we've been talking 
now about quite a bit, believing the gospel ultimately leads to becoming the gospel. And that's what we mean by humility, is that, that, that statement there. Believing the gospel leads to becoming the gospel. This is the argument of Philippians 2, and it's what I'm arguing for in the sermon this morning. So here's what I do as we come to this text in Philippians 2. I want to look and see. There are three things here. First, I want you to see uh, and answer this question. What does a life without humility look like? Secondly, what does a life of humility look like? And then third, how do you do the, the one and not the other? How do you, how do you find humility? Or, or really, what I want to say is, how does humility find you so that you live a life of humility in, before the face of God? So what does humility, what, what does a life without it look like? What does a life of it look like? And then how do you do the second, not the first? Okay, so let's, let's talk for a minute here. First, what does a life without humility look like? Well, let's just jump right into verse 3. Look there. The opposite of humility, of course, is pride, and that is verse 3. Paul writes, do nothing out of selfish ambition. I think the translation somehow we had on the screen here was do nothing out of rivalry or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So a lack of humility is characterized by what Paul calls their selfish ambition. Now be careful. Notice Paul doesn't say ambition is wrong. That's not what that word means. We are made in the image of God. We are made for great things. We are made to dream and desire great things for God, expect great things for God, as the great missionary said. So ambition is not the problem. Look at what Paul says. Selfish ambition is the problem. And selfish ambition is the desire to do great things, but not to glorify God and serve others, but to do them to set yourself apart from others, to make a name for yourself, to get, to get ahead. Humility there, verse 3, is counting others more significant than yourself. Selfish ambition then is wanting to count more than others, wanting to be more significant than others, wanting to distinguish yourself from others. The word literally means to have more than everybody else. And so we're reminded that C.S. Lewis said, pride takes no pleasure in having things, only in having more of them than the next man. Jesus told a story about a bunch of people who were invited to a dinner party and they are falling all over themselves trying to get the best seat at the table. Remember that? They're self-exalting. That's selfish ambition. You're doing your life, but always with an eye on everybody else to see how they're doing so you can make sure you stay one step ahead. Pride is me first, me ahead of you, me with more than you. Me with more than you. Me ahead of you. Dave Harvey, who is an author and pastor in Sovereign Grace Ministries uh, movement, has written a great book. I would commend it to you. It's called Rescuing Ambition. And listen to how he describes selfish ambition. Again, his name's Dave, Dave, Har- Dave Harvey. He says, I struggle with the wrong kinds of ambition. I call them Dave-bitions. So often, I, I'm Dave-bitious. I assume that my family would work much better if they all majored in Dave-ology. Friendships work best if they have a Dave-tistic bent. I believe... Many of life's misunderstandings could be cleared up with just a few Daveological insights. Overall, the world would be a better place if, I could, if we could just celebrate an, avial, an annual Dave-toberfest. He says, I guess you could call me a Daveaholic. And that's the problem. The problem is not ambition. The problem is our ambitions, like everything else in our lives, are incurvitus in se, which is a Latin phrase the church has used for hundreds of years to describe our sin, that we are curved in on ourselves, that all of our passions and emotions and desires eventually boomerang back to me. Now, where does all this come from? 
how is it that this is the way that most of us, I mean, we shake our heads, we nod because we realize, yeah, this is, uh, this is not foreign to my experience. So where, where does it really come from? And it's in the next word. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition, look there, or vain conceit. And this is an incredibly important and helpful word in the New Testament. It's a compound word in the Greek. The word kino doxoi. Kino doxoi. Kino is a prefix, which means without or empty of. Doxoi means glory or weight or significance. And so vain conceit means literally without glory. It means empty of significance. It means to be glory empty, to be to be hungry for honor and respect because inside we're we're empty. There's a huge hole and we're trying to fill it up with significance and acclaim and applause. We're radically, we're cosmically, cosmically insecure. In our deepest parts, we can't shake the feeling that we don't count, that we don't matter, that we're, we're not okay. I mean, this is the human soul. And so what we're taught here is we are seeking glory because we're without it. We're seeking significance in everything we do because we're empty of significance. And this is why, this is why uh, certain things tug on your hearts the way they do. I'm a sucker. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I hate to even confess this because it makes me look like such a, a wimp or a girl or something, but I'm a sucker, you know, for being on social media and, and uh, something comes up, you know, the America's Got Talent where some person, get, you know, gets the gold button. Have you seen this show, right? Where they, if they're so good, the, the judge just, like, bypasses the whole thing. They press the gold button. They go all the way to the, the final show or whatever it is, you know, and it's always, it's always some... You know, you're thinking, I'm not, they're not going to get me this time. And, and it's always this, a girl who's recovering from cancer and her, her hair is really short because, you know, all her life has been terrible and here she is and she's finally going to like, you know, who she really is is going to come out and she sings this beautiful song and it's so amazing. Simon presses the button and the confetti falls and you're standing there and you're going, <laughs> I mean, you know, you can't, you just like, right? Are you with me, right? Am, I mean, I know I'm the only one, I know I'm the only one, okay? I know I'm the only man. But the women, at least the women in the room are tracking with me. You know, and, and, and every time I think, no, it's not going to happen. And then, and then something inside of you just bursts, you just erupt, and you think, what? What is this? And it's because when the crowd stands uh, for this person who all of their life has never, you know, has never, it's the story, it's the story we all long for, this person who's never had uh, any attention or anybody, like, applaud them the way they should, and then, they finally are unveiled and they do this great thing and the crowd roars in applause and everybody stands to their feet and they press the button and the confetti starts to fall. You were made for that. Do you know that? You were made for that. You were, you, in, in, who, in who you are, you've been made for that. We were made to live forever. We were made to, to, to be celebrated like that. By the angels in heaven, we're, we're made to, to never be forgotten. We're made to stand in the presence of God and for the confetti to fall. We were made to last, but because we've turned away from God, we know we're fading, we know we're heading towards death, and we will be forgotten. And so what happens is we don't, we don't feel real. Now, this is deep psychology, I know, but it's what the Bible teaches. So everywhere we're going, we're, we're trying to do something about this. We're looking for something to do or someone to love that will make us feel important and worthwhile and to fill us with the glory that we've been made for but that most of us live without. It's the truest part of us. There's an old Groucho Marx skit <laughs> where he's having a conversation with a friend and he's just going on and on about himself. 
this and that about me, this and that about me. And then finally he, you know, he kind of catches himself. He comes to himself. He turns to his friend. He says, you know, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. That's enough talk about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think of me? That's vain conceit. And it's vain because it's a useless pursuit. We're empty of the glory and the love we were made for. And so everywhere we go and everything we do and every relationship and every, just about every conversation, we're selfishly motivated. We use people to get glory because we need to feel better about ourselves. And, and every now and then what happens is, is you actually succeed. You get a promotion or you get a compliment. And it feels like the confetti starts to fall around you, but the problem is it's never enough. The very best affirmations that we get in this world are like taking a shovel of dirt and throwing it into the Grand Canyon. And so that's what a life of humility, without humility, looks like. Full of selfish ambition that's being driven by this, this glory emptiness that's inside of us. But secondly then, let's, let's keep going. Then what does a life of humility of humility, a life with humility look like. And it's the opposite of selfish ambition and pride in verse 3. And this is in verse 4. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider, you know, consider others better than yourselves. And then he, and he goes on to, to kind of elaborate on that a little bit. He says, Let each of you, verse 4, look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. So the essence of sin there is me first, you know, me first, me first, not you, me first. Not you, me Humility, then, is you first. It's, humility is not me, you. Making sure others have what they need before you worry about yourself. Make, looking around and seeing what other people need, not just being motivated by, by your own desires. When, when your plan for the day gives way to someone else's need, that's humility. And it feels like so many things in our life come down to this, doesn't it? So many things, a dozen times a day, comes down to me or you. The trash needs to be taken out. Me or you? The baby is awake in the middle of the night. Right? This is when husbands feign sleep. If I don't move, she'll think I'm still asleep. Me or you? I have a sermon to write. My son has a school project due tomorrow that needs to be finished. Me or him? See, a person who's been touched by the gospel lives their life by a certain rule. And it's just this, not me, you. In those, those dozens of times every day, not me, you. So where does this kind of life come from then? And it comes from an absence of self. See, the problem with the first part is that we're so, we're so um, full of self, we're, we're, we're so needy on the inside, we're constantly being motivated to do things to draw attention to ourselves this kind of life comes from the absence of self, an absence of self-will or self-importance, self-pity. No self. Now, that's humility, and we have to be careful here, okay? We've, we can make a mistake here, and that is to think that by humility we mean a certain type of temperament. That the humble person is a person who's always deferring to everybody else, the person who can't ever say no. That's not necessarily a sign of spiritual strength. That can be a sign of spiritual weakness. What we might call the mousy person, quiet, shy, the kind of person who's always telling you that she's a nobody. That's not humility. Humility is not minimizing yourself. Humility is not going into hiding when you come into a room. That can actually be a form of pride. Humility, C.S. Lewis said, is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility is the absence of self-consciousness and self-pity. It's self-forgetfulness. 
You could say it this way, humility is what you're looking at. So Peter Kreef wrote, pride has ingrown eyeballs, but humility stares outward at others in self-forgetful ecstasy. Humility is not noticing yourself because you're no longer glory hungry. Something's happened to you. You've been filled up on the inside. So it, it, you're not always worried about how you're, how you're looking. You're not, it, you know, humility is not being down on yourself or being up on yourself. It's not thinking about yourself at all. It's not talking about yourself. It's thinking and talking about yourself less. In Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis, Lewis's great book, Screwtape, who's a senior demon, gives this advice to Wormwood, his, his understudy, about how to tempt one of his patients. Here's what he says. He's, he writes, I see that your patient has become humble. Well, listen to this. This is his advice. He says, have you drawn attention to that fact? Catch him in a moment when he's really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection I'm being humble. And almost immediately, pride in his own humility will appear. Abjection and self-hatred can do us such good if they keep the man concerned with himself. And self-contempt can be the starting point for contempt of others and thus for gloom, cynicism, and cruelty. Now, what do we learn from this? It's really brilliant, isn't it? We learn that being arrogant and thinking too highly of yourself is pride, but so is feeling condemned and thinking too low of yourself. They're the same thing because... You're thinking about yourself. And so self-hatred and self-pity is actually a great strategy of evil for making people gloomy and cynical and cruel because, because it, keeps, it keeps you from your woundedness or whatever the case might be. It keeps you focused on you. But a person who's working properly, just like a body part, isn't thinking about itself. So nobody, none of you woke up this morning and said, man, my elbows feel great. My elbow's like rocking it today. Right, because when your body part is working the way it's supposed to, you don't think about it. When you become conscious of something wrong with your body is when something's broken, when something's hurt, when something's not functioning the way that it should. If you were healthy, you wouldn't even be thinking about how you're doing. You wouldn't be always looking at yourself. You'd be looking up and around and not looking in so much. It's spiritually unhealthy. If, and I might have some experience with this, if if your self-consciousness is cluttering up your emotional life all the time, if you're always having to fight through how you're feeling before you move out to interact with others, that you're never with other people when you're with them, thinking about them, listening to them, and paying attention with them, but even when you're with others, there's this internal dialogue that's drowning out the conversation at the table. When somebody else does something that's really amazing, and you can't enjoy it or celebrate it because, because their awesomeness feels like an indictment of you. Anybody else with me? We need to be rescued from this. So how does that happen? And so let's go to the last part. We're going to spend uh, the rest of our time here. Uh, what I want you to see then is how do you live like verse 4 and not like verse 3? Isn't that what Paul's wanting to, to get us to here. It's what he's after. Uh, but do you see, look at your outline. Do you see how I've asked the question in the outline, how does humility find you? I've, I've worded the question that way intentionally because you can't just decide. See, at this point in our time together, we can't just decide, you know what? I'm going to be more humble. It doesn't work that way. Humility is a shy virtue. If you start talking about her, she leaves. And so to even ask, am I humble? is to not be so, because what? What? You're already thinking about yourself again. You're, you're diagnosing yourself. 
You're questioning yourself. So every, here's, the, here's the irony. This is what is so great. And this is why I've been in su- such constant prayer this morning. Is every minute I spend talking about humility this morning, you and I are actually becoming less humble. Because it's hard to listen to a sermon like this and not be thinking about yourself. But humility is being self-forgetful. So what do we do? We have to have our eyes turned out away from us to Jesus. And when that happens... When that happens, you'll be humbled, and then you can humble yourself. So you can't just say, I'm going to be more humble. It doesn't work that way. You have to be humbled by the humility of Jesus for your sake. You have to be humbled by the humility of Jesus for your sake, and then humble yourself into his humility for his sake. That's the way this works. So let me just pastorally say, stop thinking about yourself. Can we, stop? Can we just stop thinking about ourselves for a minute? Let's stop thinking about ourselves for just a minute. Stop looking at yourself, and let's, let's look at Jesus, because that's exactly where Paul takes us, doesn't it? This is here, beginning in verse 5, this is the master story of the gospel. Scholars say it's an ancient hymn, maybe a catechism that Paul's quoting. And so what do we learn? Look at what Paul does here. Let's, let's look together. He says, have the mind of Christ, who, verse, verse 6, let me find my place, who, though he was in the form of God, and so the first thing we see here is that Jesus is, according to Paul, very God of very God. In other words, all that God is, Jesus is. All that God is owed, Jesus is owed. All authority and power and glory are his. He is rich beyond measure. He is the darling of heaven. And then look what Paul says. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider this glory that was his something to be grasped, but emptied himself by becoming human. Now this is interesting. You see that? That word emptied there? Do you know what word that word emptied is? It's the word kenosis. Just like in verse 3. In verse 3, Paul says, we're empty. And so all of our life, we're trying to be filled by the praise and approval of others. Jesus was full, full of love, full of glory. And he willingly and joyfully emptied himself. But emptied himself of what? This is the question. Not his divinity. I mean, in the incarnation, Jesus didn't stop being God. He started being a servant. He didn't shed his divine nature. He assumed a human nature. So Jesus didn't empty himself of his divinity. So what does, it, what does it mean that he emptied himself? This is what scholars and theologians have wrangled with for, for centuries. B.B. Warfield, the old Princeton theologian, has helped me the most here. He says, what this must mean is that Jesus emptied himself of self. That's the only thing it can mean. That he emptied himself of self. That he didn't think about what he wanted to or what was rightfully his. And here are his words. Listen to Warfield. He says, So there was no compulsion from his father, no desires for himself, no hope of gain or fear of loss, but simple, unselfish, sacrificing love. Now listen, he says, He, Jesus, thought nothing of his divine majesty, nothing of his unsullied blessedness. He thought nothing of his equality with God, but absorbed in us, in our needs, our misery, our helplessness, he made no account of himself. Here's what he means. He means Jesus had infinite power and authority and wealth and resources, and yet he didn't use any of that stuff on himself. Jesus had a trillion trillions in the bank. And yet his whole life as he walked on this earth, he made not a single withdrawal in order to take care of his own needs. There's absolutely no selfishness in him whatsoever, which means there's only love. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be 
grasp, but emptied himself, becoming human, and humbling himself, he became obedient, look here, even to death on the cross. And so ultimately it, mean, it meant his death on a cross. Now this is the master story of the gospel. Jesus had glory and power and riches, and he gave all of it away to take care of you. There's no selfish ambition in him whatsoever, only love. And so the incarnation, we're told by Paul here, is a movement away from self-concern and independence from the needs of others and towards sacrificial love and generosity. The most high became the most low. The king, think about this, the king in the form of God. Look at verse 7, took upon himself the form of a servant. Don't water that down. The king became a slave. Your king became your slave. Have you ever heard of a king like that? I haven't. Let that sink in for just a minute. The one who possessed in himself all glory and majesty and power stepped down from his throne and took up a towel to wash feet. The one who possesses life in himself was given over to death. Why? Verse 1 tells us. For love. So here's my question. Do you see his humility for you? Does it melt your heart? Does it humble you to be loved like that? It humbles you. This is the love that you need. This is the glory that you've been looking for. This is the acclaim and the approbation and the approval that your heart has been looking for everywhere else. Do you see what Jesus went without to have you? That can fill your heart. It, can, it, can, it, it, it is like a trillion dump, whatever it would take, a trillion dump truck loads of dirt to fill in the Grand Canyon. To be loved like that, it humbles you. See, that's the point. But to be loved like that leads you to love. And this is the argument that Paul's making. He says in verse 1, if you have any encouragement in Christ, look there if you have a Bible, any comfort in his love, have the same love, he says. And there he moves on there, do nothing from selfish ambition. And so Paul's trying to solve the problem. How do you get humility? You can't just work on it. You can't find it. It has to find you. You can't say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work on being humble this week. That doesn't work. You have to be humbled by his humility. And then, and then in response, you humble yourself into his humility. I mean, look at the, the text doesn't say that Jesus was humble and so he did this or that. It says he humbled himself. And I would say the Bible, I have to be careful about this. I asked Ashley about this last night. I don't know if I'm going to say it. But the Bible doesn't, the force of the Bible isn't really be humble. Uh, the force of the Bible, it says humble yourself. There's a difference. What does it mean? It means you look out away from yourself and you move out away from yourself. You strategically, intentionally enter the master story of the gospel. What we read of Jesus here becomes the narrative structure of your life. And so faith is, faith is not just saying, look what Jesus did for me. When you put your faith in Christ and follow him, what happens is, is your whole life becomes a retelling of the master story. It becomes what one author but a new performance of the original drama. A new performance of the original drama. I'm unfortunately getting to the age now where, where Hollywood is starting to remake the movies and the stories of my childhood. It's depressing. So the movies, yeah, I'm old, thanks. That was Carter, I'm sure, if I had to guess, yeah. Um, you know, so all the movies that I grew up going to the theaters to see are coming out, and none of them are as good as the originals, and that means I'm really old. When you think that, that's sure indication that you've really become old. Uh, you know, and, and this is what happens, isn't it? Every so often, why do they do this? Uh, you know, because they're not improving on what they made. What they're, what they're doing is they're trying to make it accessible to the next generation. They're trying to reach people that can't be reached 
by the original story because it's just too old. It's not cool. The technology is too dated, whatever the case might be. And so uh, it's an axiom of Hollywood. Uh, the best stories just keep getting updated and retold over and over again. And that's really, that's really what Paul is saying here, that our lives are meant to be the updated, retold story for the world and the people that God has sent to us to of the love of Jesus for them 2,000 years on the, ago on the cross. Does that make sense? J. Oswald Chambers told the story of a missionary in India who trampled barefoot across the countryside to share the gospel in whatever village he came upon. And at the end of one particularly long and thriving excuse me, tired, tiring day, he came upon a remote village and began to preach the gospel. But as soon as he began to preach, the villagers jumped him. They beat him up and dragged him out of the village, and the man was so tired that he lay down underneath a tree and fell asleep, wondering when they would come to, uh, to finish him off. Hours later, the missionary awoke. He startled awake. He was surrounded by the entire village, and then one of the leading men stepped out from the crowd uh, as they saw that he had woken up, and they said, We came out to see what kind of man you were, because when we saw your blistered feet, we knew you were a holy man. We want you to tell us why you got blistered feet to come and talk to us. See, the missionaries' blistered feet, they were the message. His blistered feet told the story of the cross better than any words could. His life took the shape of his message. It became a retelling a remake of the suffering love of Jesus for the people that he had been sent to. See, humble yourself means, means you allow your life and even more you choose for your life to take the shape of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The cross, the cross wasn't just the end of Jesus' life. His whole life took the shape of the cross. And if you're a Christian, then you don't just believe that. You become that. Do you remember what I said at the beginning? Believing the gospel leads to becoming the gospel. In other words, your, your life day to day becomes a retelling of the cross. This is what it means, verse 5, to have the mind of Christ. So listen to B.B. Warfield one last time, and then I'll come to a close. Listen, this is a long quote, but it's so good that I wanted to share it with you. He begins by describing Jesus' love and then moves on to how we are to become a retelling of that love. He says, he, Jesus, did not cultivate self. Think about that. He did not cultivate self, even his divine self. He took no account of himself. He was not led by his divine impulse out of the world, driven back into the recesses of his own soul to brood morbidly over his own needs. But instead, he was led by love for others into the world, listen to this phrase, to forget himself in the needs of others. Isn't that beautiful? To, to sacrifice self once for all upon the altar of love. Self-sacrifice brought Christ into the world. And here he, here he makes the turn. And self-sacrifice will lead us, his followers, not away from, but into the midst of men. Wherever men suffer, there we will be to comfort. Wherever men strive, there we will be to help. Wherever men succeed, there we will be to rejoice. Who says Presbyterians can't preach? That's like, that's preaching, man. He says, the mind of Christ means not indifference to our times and fellows. It means absorption in them. Listen, he says, it means forgetfulness of self in others. That's what it means to humble yourself, to forget yourself in others, just like Jesus. And it's what Paul talks about in Romans 6, where he says that we've been buried with him in our baptism into death. And in 2 Corinthians 4, which we read, that where we're constantly being given over to death so that others might live. And what does it mean? It means being united in Christ 
excuse me, being united in faith to Christ means my whole life now begins to follow a certain pattern, a particular story arc, over and over again, every day, a dozen times a day, whatever the case might be. And, and the story arc is this, not me, you. Not my needs, not my rights, not my comforts, not my agenda. I give all of that up for you. I die as Jesus died for me so that you might live. His death, he had to die so that I might live. Now, I, now he turns me around and he points me at people that I get the privilege of dying for so that they might live. That's what it means to be a husband. That's what it means to be a father. That's what it means to be a friend. That's what it means to be a missionary. That's what it means to be an evangelist. That's what it means to be a Christian. Not me, you. I die so that you could live. And man, I wish I had time to go into the specifics and really apply this. Unfortunately for me, fortunately for you, I'm out of time. And so you'll have to do the work of application in your community groups or at the dinner table with your family. But one thing, one thing I want to do is this. I want to be honest. I want to be honest with you and say, I don't know exactly what this might mean for your life right now, but I do know this. That kind of life, not me, you. My death at work in me so that life might be at work in you. We've talked about this a lot. This kind of life, the decisions in life where it comes down to that. I don't know what it might mean for you, but I do know this. I know it's going to be hard. I know it's hard. And so where do you find the courage to humble yourself and follow Jesus down into death, whatever that might mean? Let me finish with just this one thought. You have to see what happens to him. Look at Philippians 2 one more time. We're told that Jesus humbled himself, was obedient to death upon the cross, and then beginning in verse 9 we read, therefore, because, in other words, because of everything in verses 6 through 8, therefore, because he did this, he humbled himself, became obedient to death. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. Because Jesus Christ humbled himself, God exalted him. Because he went down into death in love for others, God raised him up. Now listen to the scriptures. James 4, 1 Peter 5. Humble yourself, the writers of the Bible say, and in due time he will lift you up. Do you know what that means? It means the end of the story, the end of Jesus' story was not death, it was resurrection. And if your faith is in Christ, the end of whatever gospel story you're in the middle of, it won't be death. The, the end won't be death. It will be resurrection. Now, it may not feel like it now. It may not feel like it to you now, but listen, can I be your friend and say it's because you're in the middle of the story. The end hasn't come yet. You're not at the end yet. The end is resurrection. God acted to raise Jesus up out of death. His acting to do that means that when you forget yourself, in others, and when you follow him into your death, no matter how painful it might be, no matter how dark the valley of shadow of death might be that you walk through, there's a promise for you here. He will raise you up too. You've been united to him in his death, Paul says, but you've also been united to him in his resurrection. So the question is, do you trust him? Do you trust him? Do we trust him? Look to Jesus, forgetting, him, forgetting himself in your needs. Fill your mind with his love until it humbles you. And then once you've been humbled, humble yourself into his, his humility. That's the way, knowing that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself like he did, he, we're promised, will be exalted. Let's pray. Can we do that? So, Father, as we come to these last moments of our service, we do pray, 
you would fill our minds, fill our hearts with the truth of your love for us, that that's what these songs would do, that they, the words that we sing to one another as we edify one another in these, in these songs here at the end, that, that the result would be that we would come to really see your love for us and to know your love for us, and that the result would be that we would be deeply humbled. Seeing your humility, you who had riches and power and authority that we can only dream of, and yet took no account of any of those things, didn't, didn't hoard them for yourselves, didn't even think about them, but willingly laid them all aside, forgetting yourself in us. Who does that? What king, what god in all of the earth acts that way towards ungrateful, rebellious people like us? And yet, it is how you have moved towards us. Oh, we can barely stand it, Father. We can barely conceive of that, and so we need your help for our minds to wrap themselves around that and grasp that truth. And when, when it comes, when it comes, when it comes, give us the courage to respond as you tell us to in your scriptures to humble ourselves into your humility because that is the place where you desire us to be. It's a hard place to live, but it's where you want us to be. It's where we learn more about you. It's where we experience the joy and the life that you've promised to give us. And it's where we bear fruit that is to your everlasting glory. And that's our desire. And so help us now. The question before, do we trust you? Lord, we believe. But in these moments, help our unbelief as we sing to you. Help us to sing ourselves to faith. To sing one another to faith. So that we might have the courage to follow you where you lead. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So receive the promise of this benediction. These words, these words are the words that you're running around looking for somebody to speak to you, but only when they come from the one who's made you do they really come home to your heart and matter in the way that you need for them to. Here, here are the good words that God speaks over you. Let them fill your heart, cure you of that emptiness inside, and then go. Don't wait for him to humble you. Or don't, excuse me, don't wait until you're, you're humble. Go and humble yourself. Let him teach you humility and faith uh, and put you in a place where he desires to, to use you. But the strength comes and knowing that the one who sends you goes with you. That's what these words mean. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.